would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohim, Elohim, lama sabachantini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain on the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is a most powerful moment that is taking place here in human history. Last week we talked about Jesus before His accusers. And now we see Jesus carrying the cross of Calvary. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask You this morning that You would remove us and that we would not see ourselves, but that we would see Jesus Christ. All that He has accomplished for us. Lord, we need You this morning, God. We ask You this morning that You would minister to our hearts, that You would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may behold the wonderful works of Your Word. Have Your way in us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we see in this part of the passage that Jesus is now being led to be crucified. But at this very point, there is a man that is passing by and his name is Simon. Simon of Cyrene. Now what we see that Mark he gives certain details that he's not just going to put him here for no reason. There's a purpose behind why Mark is giving us this name of Simon of Cyrene. But not only that, he says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. I'm like, Rufus, man, that's a, one of them crazy names, huh? Rufus. Your, your son's name is Rufus. That sounds tough, huh? So it's Alexander and Rufus. But Cyrene is located in North Africa. 
So follow with me because this guy was traveling through and he's from North Africa. So this is an African man that was traveling through that is chosen to carry the cross of Jesus. This is no mistake that this put this this is put here. When Paul when Mark is writing the account, we see that he's writing this and he's saying that this is Simon of Cyrene. This man is mentioned here in the most important part of human history where Jesus Christ the son of God is fixing to be crucified. Why is Mark then putting this here? There's a trustworthiness that goes along with Mark's account of what took place. He shows us that there were eyewitnesses of this crucifixion. What he's showing is that these facts are reliable historical events of a real historical Jesus. It's not someone that he is making up. So now, Follow with me because when the Gospel of Mark is being written, there are readers who are in Mark's mind that he is intending for them to read. So when the Gospel of Mark is being written, there's people that he knows that are going to read this letter. And so these people must know of who Simon of Cyrene is and maybe who their sons were. They must have made some kind of impact, therefore, Mark to mention their names. Say, Simon carried the cross. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. He carried the cross all the way to Golgotha. He didn't just help Jesus, he carried the cross all the way to where Jesus was going to be crucified. So now you tell me, would such a moment like this one impact a person? Or would this be just any other ordinary situation? I mean, when, when you see or are a witness of a tragic accident, you don't just stay quiet about it, you, you want to tell people. Like, I just witnessed a horrific accident, something that was brutal. And here goes Cyrene of North Africa witnessing Jesus Christ being tortured. And he's carrying his cross. I know this had to impact this man. Not only did he carry the cross, to Golgotha, but I believe he carried the message of the cross all the way to North Africa. Now, another thing that we're seeing here, that God is working out his sovereign purpose. He's working out his sovereign purpose by who he is allowing to become part of this story here. And now we're, list, we're reading about it and we're learning about it. But now the next thing that we see about Simon of Cyrene, where he carries the cross, this also points to us to the marks of a disciple. Jesus said, you must deny yourself, 
Pick up the cross and follow me. The marks of a disciple of Jesus. One who would deny themselves and pick up the cross and follow Jesus. Simon here, like Simon says, right? I, that, that's kind of messing with it. Simon here is saying, the, the Mark is saying about Simon that he denied himself right there because he's passing by. Called him a pick up Jesus' cross and he picks it up and he takes it all the way to Golgotha. But what do we see from here? You know, the marks of a, of a disciple are one that he's dying to self. He's setting aside his own interest for the interest of another. He's dying to self. He's picking up the cross. What does that mean? That you and I are identifying ourselves with a crucified Savior. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But to follow Jesus, it means a life of obedience. The call of all who belong to Jesus is a life that no longer belongs to you or me. Our life belongs to one who died for us. And that is Jesus. So what should motivate our hearts to obedience? When we look to our Savior. When we deny ourselves, pick up the cross and to follow Him. So now the next thing that we see that Mark gives careful attention to are specifics. These specifics that he gives attention to are Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled. In here we see that they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but they also divided the garments and they were casting lots. But there are different instances in the next few verses that Mark captures in connection to the Old Testament. There are, are at least maybe nine, ten Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled here. There's one specific one that it gives allusion to that is Psalm 22, that is known as the Messianic Psalm. So these Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ here in his point of death. All of these Old Testament prophecies like we find in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the way he would be crucified, in between two people that were criminals. Like, these are specifics that are given. But what are we seeing with this, though? These specific Old Testament prophecies show us that Jesus Christ is not only fulfilling prophecy, but it is relying on the totality of Scripture. We see how Old Testament and New Testament are coming together. They're not separated from one another. Christ is the interpretive key for both of them coming together. Man, how were these guys in the Old Testament going to know such specific details about Jesus in the way he was going to be crucified unless God was involved in all of this? This is what makes our Bible 
authentic and given to us by God. It is a reliable word of God. And we see this here. But another thing that we're seeing as we read in the manner that, that Jesus was being treated by the Roman people, by Pilate, by the chief priest, by the crowd, we see that in the physical realm, the physical eye only saw Jesus being mistreated, Jesus being tortured. And so now follow with me, because this is the Jesus that is being beaten, and he's hanging on the cross, and so everyone's standing around him. That's what they're seeing. So imagine the claims that Jesus made. The claims that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The claims that he came to give his life but to save many. Like, these are claims that he was making, but in this moment, all the people that are around Jesus, all they could see is a man that is bleeding, a man that is dying. A man that is nailed to the cross. That's all they could see. In the physical realm, that is all they could understand. So now you imagine how difficult must it have been for the disciples to believe. I'm sure they were wrestling with this. To hold on to their faith in their darkest hour. In the face of evil. In the face of suffering and uncertainty. All they could hear is the crowds mocking Jesus. They must have been saying, surely God has abandoned him. And as we will see later, God did forsake his son. And so, underneath all of this, God is still at work. There is not one moment that this fumbled the plan of God. The evil intentions of man, they didn't fumble the plan of God. God was still at work. In the darkest hour in human history, God was still at work. His redemptive purpose, the manifold wisdom of God, he is still sovereignly in control. So what does this mean for you and me today? What does it mean then? Should we allow the mocking voices that we hear today to sway us away from Jesus? Because we hear that today. People mocking our Lord and Savior. Should we allow their criticism to inform our thinking and shape our belief system? Or should we, even in our darkest hour, still trust in Jesus Christ? still trust in a God who has met us where we are at. Because if God provided for us our greatest need, which was to be reconciled to God, it wasn't to make a better you or a better me. It is to be reconciled to God. We needed a Savior. And God met us where we were at in our most broken place. So Jesus came to the rescue. But, el but what else then are we seeing? So in the 
physical realm this was taking place, but in the spiritual realm, God was at work. So let's look at those phrases that, uh, that Mark is using here. The first one we find in verse 26. Look at what it says. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They must have said, here goes this man who claimed to be a king of the Jews, and he is being crucified between two criminals. Instead of being honored as king, he is being humiliated and treated as a criminal. They not knowing, not knowing that Jesus was the true king whose kingdom is eternal, whose reign is eternal. The suffering king who would die for you and I. The next one we see in verse 29, where they say that he said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He claimed to destroy the temple, but he himself is being destroyed by the hands of his accusers. But not realizing that Jesus was referring to his body. Not realizing that Jesus was referring to his death and resurrection. They weren't realizing that. That Jesus is the true and better temple. His body was the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who, would, who is sacrificed for us. His resurrection, which is the divine declaration that the Father accepted what the Son did. They weren't realizing all of this that was taking place. That now because of that, we are ushered into the very presence of God. They're not realizing those things. In verse 30, they were, they were saying, why don't you save yourself? Come down from that cross. Man, can you imagine? Because Jesus, in the very first days after the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he's being baptized. He goes into the wilderness. And who is tempting him there? Satan. He's tempting him in the wilderness for him to come down from there to worship him. But here he goes again through the people, through the crowd, trying to tempt Jesus to come down from the cross because Satan knows that there is victory at that cross. He knows that the moment that Jesus dies, there is victory. When he raises again, there is victory. And he don't want that to take place. And here you see the crowd and the people telling them, hey, come down from that cross. Save yourself. Because look, Jesus is nailed. How, how are you going to do that? Realistically, you can't, Jesus. So in the physical realm, they cannot comprehend. Not knowing that if Jesus was to come down from that cross, there will be no forgiveness for sins. But Jesus willingly stayed on that cross. He wasn't forced to go to that cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you and I. Jesus was not concerned with saving himself. But instead, he put the interests of others before his own in order to save sinners. Sinners. That is why Jesus did it. 
Now in verse 31, we see the religious elite. They're telling Jesus amongst each other, and they're talking about Jesus. They're saying, he saved others, but he cannot even save himself. He went around healing people. He went around casting out demons. But they couldn't comprehend, well, how is it that you can't save yourself, Jesus? Look, come down from that cross, and if we see that, we'll believe. Little do they know what is about to take place. Soon Jesus will come down from that cross, but he's going to be carried into that tomb. And they're going to roll a stone over that tomb. And many will say in that moment, look, he's dead. But death could not stop our Savior. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Oh, death, where is your sting? So here goes these religious leaders thinking they're going to stop Jesus by putting him to death. But little do they know that he will overcome death. Because in Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. And he is not only alive here, but he is eternal life. So all the people that would stand around him, not understanding in the physical realm what was taking place in the spiritual realm. Because in all of this, what we see that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is dying the death that you and I deserve to have died. Jesus is suffering in our place. He is the Lamb of God who is slaughtered on the cross of Calvary. So why are you and I saved? It is through a bloody cross. Man, we, we, we try to make little of it. Well, why are you saved today? Well, it's because I, I go to church. It's because I read my Bible. That's not why you are saved. You and I are saved because Christ died on the cross of Calvary. He was slaughtered on the cross of Calvary. He died a bloody death. That's why you're saved. He took the judgment you and I deserve. That's why you're saved. So when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I allow you into heaven? We're not going to say because of the good things we did. We're going to say, look to your right hand, O oh Father. It is because of Jesus. Because of him, what he accomplished for me. I just benefit on that. I benefit for what he's done for me. It is not my righteousness. It is His righteousness accredited to me. He is our substitute. But He is not only our substitute in death, but also in life. We see in Philippians that it talks how, how Jesus took on the form of a servant and obeyed all the way to the cross. That is key words. He obeyed all the way to the cross, fulfilling all perfect righteousness for you and I. All the way in the face of death, in the face of rejection, all the way 
to the cross. So therefore, his life of obedience is given to you and I. What a great exchange. What do we bring to the table? Well, I, you know, I'm pretty skilled at, at, at this job. Or, you know, I could do this. I could offer God this. We can't offer God nothing. Simply to the cross we cling. Nothing in our hands we bring, as the old hymn says. It is a reminder to us that Jesus Christ brought everything for us. It is faith not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. And so what we see then, that Mark gives careful account as to what took place. Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But in this, we're seeing that the king had to suffer. And it was for me and you. What king would come from his throne to come to die for his people? But Jesus Christ himself. The only king of kings. The king of glory himself. Now the next thing that we see, family, is that this king was forsaken by his father. Look at what it says in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour in reference to, it was 12 o'clock noon. 12 o'clock noon, that's, that's pretty sunny outside, right? And look at what it says, that darkness had come over the whole land. Darkness came upon the whole land. In the Old Testament, when they make reference to darkness, it is always a sign of God's judgment. There's careful attention to this. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. These are their historical books that are also written that give a test to what took place on that day. That when Jesus Christ was being crucified, that all of a sudden it got dark over the whole land. But this wasn't because was, there was a solar eclipse. This was because divine judgment was taking place. Divine judgment was taking place. And it says that it was until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. So for a total of three hours, Jesus Christ is Bearing the weight of judgment upon himself. So follow with me because a lot of times we have, we have made much of the beating and torture that Jesus received, which is horrific. It is. Don't get me wrong. Him, him feeling the, the beatings and the betrayal of all his people, he suffered there. But look at what's taking place here. Look at when Jesus cries out. It is at the ninth hour that Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohim, Elohim, Lema. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, in this family, is the very heart of what's taking place in the gospel. Jesus addresses God 
as my God, my God. There's a sense of intimacy here that is embraced in this cry. This cry of agony and anguish and pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We normally would use words like my, my spouse, I'll say my Sophia, right? To, to say that's my wife or my mama, me mommy, right? <laughs> so my mom, a, a sense of endearment, of, of intimacy. Jesus Christ facing the rejection of all humanity, but what compelled him to cry out was that the Father had abandoned him. In the darkest hour in human history, what God was releasing upon the Son was the full measure of His wrath. The full weight of God's wrath. Man, I... You and I supposed to be there. You and I deserve that. We can't point, no, he deserves it more. No, we all deserve the equal amount of God's judgment. And Jesus stepped in for us. That is love. He stepped in and he bore the judgment that you and I deserve. And at that moment, Jesus is experiencing the full measure of God's wrath and the abandonment of the Father. For all eternity, they've enjoyed this beautiful harmony. This beautiful harmony. This love between one another. And now, finally, at this point of the cross, what do you think in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was crying out, if you could take this cup from me. This cup was the sufferings that he would endure. It was the rejection of his own father. When we have someone we love so dearly and they reject us, how does that make us feel? Like I've trusted in you all this time and you've abandoned me. That hurts. So now imagine the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being abandoned by his Father at the cross. Why am I laboring so much in this? This is very important for us to see, family. Because in this moment of deep anguish that Jesus is feeling here, he is demonstrating the greatest act of faith. He is still trusting in God. He is still clinging to the truth that, God, you're still there, someone that I, I can't feel you, I can't see you, but I am clinging to you. What does that mean for you and I? That in those moments when we feel that God has forsaken us, that maybe we've sinned too horrific that God would not deal with us. That somehow our prayers are, are like a little ping pong back and forth, but they never go nowhere. Have we ever felt like that? That we're placed in that time where, where we feel darkness covering us and we can't even 
feel the presence of God and, and we get confused and we're going back and forth. And How can this speak to us? When we look at Jesus Christ, what is going on at that cross? How can this speak to us? Jesus given for us a powerful example. Because if Jesus allowed his feelings to determine what was true, he would have came off that cross a long time ago. If he would have allowed his circumstances to determine what is true, he would have came off that cross a long time ago. But he didn't. He continued to stay on that cross. A reminder to us that if Jesus experienced this in his darkest hour, and yet God was still faithful, why would he not do the same for me and you? That in our darkest hour, what is God not going to be faithful to us? Is his faithfulness dependent upon our faithfulness? No. Since even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Hallelujah. And this is the truth that we have to look to. Don't look to your record or to someone else's record. Look to Jesus Christ's record. It is because of him. So when Jesus is here at the cross, the Father's turning his back on him. He's abandoned his only begotten Son. In this, it is revealing to us that Jesus is experiencing enormous pain that is being afflicted upon him as the Son is being rejected to the, by the Father and, and, the, and God's face is turning away from him. His favor is turning away from him. I'm telling you, it wasn't the disciples that, that abandoned him. It wasn't Peter that denied him. It wasn't Judas that betrayed him. It wasn't Pilate that turned his back on him. It was not none of the human people that we see there that afflicted Jesus like that. It was the Father. What? What do you mean that, that the Father Himself would slaughter His own Son? What do you mean? But God is a God of love. You're right, He is. And that is why He is slaughtering His Son for you and me. He is taking the very sword and He is slicing His Son. He is destroying His Son. He says that it pleased the Father to crush Him. It pleased Him to crush Him. But it was for me and you. Because we asked God, why, why would you forsake your only Son? And He would tell us it was because for you and for me. That is why He did it. And now we go on to see that in this moment, when God would bring this darkness upon Jesus' soul at that moment, follow with me. This is infinite agony that he is feeling. This is where Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? Infinite 
agony of hell on the cross where Jesus fell into an infinite abyss of hell. Jesus is being separated from the Father and this separation is of infinitely greater agony than any other affliction. Therefore, when God forsook the Son, man, I'm telling you, it was for me and for you. For me and for you. So in those moments, we can look to Jesus Christ as our example. But not only do we look to Jesus as our example on the cross, but He is also our substitute. He is also our substitute. How do we know that Jesus, that God won't forsake us? Because Jesus was already forsaken by the Father for your sins. You're not going to be punished again for the sins that have already been paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. Satan would try to tell you that. He would try to tell you like, do you see all the things that you just did again? Do you really think that God is going to forgive you again? He is the accuser of the brethren day and night. Man, I'm telling you that when we fall and we stumble, normally what happens is that we go hide in shame and guilt. We hide in the darkness when God has called us. Run to the light, mijo. Come to me. Come to me. My son's paid for it at the cross. Come to me. And that is why we get to this next part that Jesus is our mediator. There's no other mediator between God and man. There's only Jesus Christ. There is no other saints, there's no other angels, there's no other prophets, there's no other nothing. There's only one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He is, he is the only mediator. And let us look at the way that Jesus is mediating for us. In verse 37, it tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. John captures the moment here where Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished is what the Gospel of John captures in this loud cry. As he's breathing his last breath and he entrusts his spirit into the Father's hands. And he's saying, it is finished. Three powerful words. It is finished. Finished. Everything that the Father demanded, it is finished. Perfect righteousness, it is finished. Everything that God demands of us has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Therefore, He says, it is finished. You no longer have to work for your salvation. It is finished. 
finished. You no longer have to prepare yourself with sacrifices to be accepted before God because it is finished. Let us not dare then tell Jesus, wait a minute, Lord. There's still some things that I have to do to prepare myself before I can come to church. I still have to do a few things like get myself cleaned up before I can come to church. If we are dependent upon us, we won't ever get nowhere. That is why God came and secured it for us. Therefore, we turn away from ourselves, we turn away from the people, and we look to Jesus Christ. Your salvation has been accomplished, not by you, but by God himself. Your salvation has been accomplished, and Jesus Christ said, it is finished. He is a mediator between us and God. But not only that is taking place, look at what happens here in verse 38. And this is no mistake that Mark is given this verse here right next to the other one. He says, and he breathed his last breath. And right after that happens, look at what happens. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The very holy of holies. Follow with me. In the garden. Adam and Eve enjoyed this beautiful fellowship with God. They enjoyed being able to run free with God, to enjoy the things that God had given them, to enjoy this fellowship with God. And when sin came in the picture, it separated them from God. It separated them from the very presence of God and God put something there to remind them of the separation. He put a flaming sword. That flaming sword was going to guard the very garden again so that Adam and Eve wouldn't come back in. Because of their sin, they were separated. That flaming sword came down and it sliced and killed somebody. And that was Jesus Christ. Because now, the very presence of God is made open for you and I. The curtain in the, in the Old Testament, it, in the temple, this temple was where the presence of God would come down into the Holy of Holies. This curtain was a big old curtain. These little curtains that we got here are nothing in comparison to that. Big old heavy curtains. And that would separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Because in here, the very presence of God would dwell. And only one person, one time out of the year, can go in there. And that was the high priest. And he could only go in there after he had already slaughtered a lamb to sprinkle the blood on, on, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, for not only his sins, but for the sin of the people. So look at what's happening here. 
Jesus died. And all of a sudden, this curtain that separated the people from the presence of God is torn. But not only is it torn, it's torn from top to bottom. That is to remind us that it wasn't by human hands that it was torn. But by the divine hands of God, that God tore it from top to bottom to remind us that now we are ushered into the presence of God. Jesus, the forerunner of his people, has gone before us into the Holy of Holies. He is the anchor of our soul. And where is that anchor at? In the very Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. This is beautiful for me and you. You don't have to come to a building that people will call the church to be in the presence of God. You don't have to go out to the wilderness to be in the presence of God. You could be in your own shower praising God in the presence of God. You could be in your own room coming into the presence of God. Do you see what privilege we have? People used to die if they came into the presence of God. Jesus died for us so that we can be brought into the presence of God. So people walked into the presence of God and they were afraid with reverence. Shouldn't you and I do the same? We still serve a holy God. He's not my best friend, my homie. Man, we, we make God as if some little thing. God is the God of this universe. He spoke us into existence and he sent his son to die. We owe him our lives. When we make the gospel invitation, man, there, there are a few times that we say, you know, come to the front and receive Jesus and, and so that you can be a slave to him now. We won't say that, right? But we become a slave to a greater master. And it's Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus. Man, I'm telling you, we, we live in this country right here where we've, man, we've glamorized Christianity and we've made it all nice and, and easy for people so it could be acceptable to people. Like, man, I'm, when we read the scriptures and we see the God of this universe, in hot pursuit of sinners like you and I. And this is what he's doing. He is paying the ultimate price to bring a person like you and me into his family. So what we see here, we're ushered into the very presence of God. This veil that's been torn allowing us into the very holy of holies. A reminder that it was not by man, but by God. A reminder to us that this is significant to us as believers because it took the death of Jesus. Why do you think when we take communion, it is a reminder, Paul said, man, every time you do this, you are being reminded of the death of Christ. Jesus had to die. So now we see that 
the old covenant, the old system has been put away. The new covenant has been ratified, has been validated, and now no longer do you and I have to be- rely on priests to perform in our behalf because the high priest himself, which is Jesus Christ, has gone into the temple and he himself is the sacrifice. This blows my mind. Jesus Christ himself. In Hebrews, we see a powerful picture of this. Where it says that Jesus went into a temple, not built by hands. And he gave his life, the shedding of his blood, where the the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus Christ did for us, securing for us an eternal inheritance. Securing for us eternal life. You and I cannot lose our salvation. Because it's not dependent upon you nor me. It has been set in place by Jesus Christ. That is why when we look to the gospel, we look to what Jesus has accomplished. No one can snatch him away from his hands. And Jesus has a firm grip. And I praise the Lord for that. Because in those days where I feel that I'm not getting a hold of the Lord, I can be reminded that he has a hold on me. I can be reminded that he has secured this relationship between me and God. So in our dark hour, we don't look to our circumstances or our feelings because a lot of times we run to that. Oh, no, well, look, I mean, you've been feeling like this. Maybe that, no, 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 no. Stop for a moment. Don't go to your feelings. Don't go to your circumstances. Go to the truth of the gospel. Go to the word of God. Well, it's because, you know, it's because they're telling me, I know they're telling you that, but what does God say? I'm telling you, we, we immediately run to, to fulano and fulana and what, my tia or my tío, and no, go to what God says. God is the one who has spoken to us from all eternity, and today he speaks to us. Loud and clear as he did from day one. This is because of the relationship that you and I have with him. And our relationship is not dependent upon your record. Praise be to God, right? Because if it was, man, the Lord would already kicked us out a long time ago. I mean, we don't put up with people that be messing around with us, right? If they lie to us, we're like, man, I ain't going to trust you. If they drop the ball, hey, man, I'm kicking you out. Hey, if they do this, if they do that, man, praise the Lord that we're not God. Because we would already have been cashing all people out. God, he is at work. He's established this truth for us. That he is the mediator. Jesus Christ is the mediator. We were in separate, we were 
separated from the presence of God, now we are in fellowship with that. And now you and I get to enjoy the sweet communion with God. And, and when you run to Him, when you run to God, the enemy will try to remind you of your past. But you remind him of his future. And you remind him that it's been paid for. Take those thoughts captive and bring him to the foot of the cross because the enemy will try to throw his fiery darts at you so that he can keep you in bondage but you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. You're no longer in bondage. You've been set free. For those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Therefore live as a child of God. You've been set free. You're no longer. You're no longer. Follow with me. You no longer shaped by your past. You no longer identified by your past. You and I are identified by what Jesus Christ accomplished for us at the cross. So I, I want us, when we look at the cross, let us not see it no more as like just something small that we'll either wear or we put on our shirt or we look at the wooden cross and say, oh, mira que bonito, the cross. The cross was our Savior being slaughtered for us. This is the suffering king dying in our place. This is the suffering king being forsaken by his father for us. This is the suffering king who now makes intercession for us. So if you want anyone praying, that is Jesus. Praise be to God. This is what you and I have then. We have one in Christ that we can always trust in. When darkness approaches, who do we look to? Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with us, Jesus Christ, who gave us an example to follow, Jesus Christ. And how do we know it's secure? Because Jesus Christ himself was abandoned so that you and I could be welcomed. Now you and I get to enjoy the beautiful riches of being in the very presence of God. 